Hey, this is Outside In executive producer Maureen McMurray. And before we get into this episode, just a warning that it does contain some strong language. Uh, So, yeah, you've been warned. Enjoy. When you walk on a trail in the woods, have you ever wondered, how did this get here? Am I actually following some sort of centuries-old Native American footpath, one that follows the easiest and most natural route? Surprise! You're not. This is the sound of a team of people who have carried hundreds of pounds of equipment over a mile into the woods in order to fix a hiking trail that is falling apart. They drill holes into a big boulder, probably the size of a refrigerator, and then hammer in wedges, slowly splitting the rock into nice, flat chunks. Next, they strap the rock chunk onto a zip line because the trail itself is actually 30 feet below the spot where they can get rocks from. Hoist, hold! It's a three-person job. One controls how high in the air the rock hangs, another lets it slide down along the zip line, and a third directs the whole show from below. Play holding. Once the rock is down, a hole gets dug, the rock gets attached to a different kind of lever and pulley setup, and using a rock bar and lots of finagling, the rock gets dropped into place. All of that, maybe two or three hours of work for three people, for a single step in a stone staircase near a nice waterfall. People think these staircases occur naturally. This is Nova, which is not his real name. Everyone who does this work gets assigned a woods name. His real name is Alex Mildy. He's in charge of this particular Appalachian Mountain Club work crew, which is working at a place called Champney Falls in New Hampshire's White Mountains. We've had people do that. They've been walking down our work, talking to their kid, and then we like, we're rolling around in the dirt clearly putting in a staircase, and they're like, yes, honey, these steps were put here by God. This is actually the ultimate compliment to a trail builder. Using natural materials taken from nearby, they're hoping their work will blend right in. Hoping that when you're halfway up a mountain, miles from the nearest road, the stone staircase you're stepping on feels as natural as the forests that surround it. And the trail makers themselves, just like their work, are practically invisible. So who does this job? Who are these trail gods? Any trail crew guy worth his shit. He would rather have mushrooms growing out of his underwear, if in fact he wore underwear, than he would ever be caught with his axe dull or not ready to go. You see what I'm saying? Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. This week, a glimpse inside the hidden world of trail builders, what it takes to make sure you have an enjoyable walk in the woods, and how even as we shape trails, trails are shaping us. talk about how trails are made, I'm going to talk about what is, as far as I can tell from my corner of the world, the most legendary trail crew around. The Appalachian Mountain Club's professional trail crew in the White Mountains. Among themselves, they're also known as the TFC. So TFC. TFC uh, came around, no one really knows where it came from. It came around in the 
70s sometime. Stands for uh, Trail Fucking Crew. Trail Fucking Crew. This is not in any of the AMC's official literature. That comes from a second-year crew member, Wood's name Aesop, who declined to tell us his real name. Yeah, we like to say if uh, you're telling your grandma asks what it stands for, you just say Trail Fixing Crew. So what's with that name? This is where the mythology of this crew comes in. The first thing you might hear about the TFC is about their legendary toughness. Um, on Monday, everyone had at least probably about 150 pounds coming up this trail. Um, so that's definitely on the heavier side. That incredible understatement comes from Switchback, real name Ashley Fife, the current trail master. They carry these absurd loads on packboards, which look something like a bed frame with shoulder straps. What's the, what's the craziest load you've ever seen someone carry on one of those? I saw a pack go in, and uh, we had, it was all steel, so we knew the weight of everything on it. And I think it came out to be about 270 pounds. Jesus. Now, I will say, no one actually weighed that backpack, and someone else on the same crew told me he thought it was 205 pounds. But regardless, that's crazy. Some crew members actually fight over who gets to carry the heaviest gear. What's that feel like on your shoulders? Um, it's, it's crippling. It... <laughs> Aesop says learning that you can carry more than you thought is a crucible that everyone on the crew has to pass through. You're, uh, you're going you have to develop a definitely strong mental attitude and a mindset to just kind of break through those pain barriers and just keep on walking one foot in front of the other. Apart from really heavy packs, the crew also hikes really far and really fast. They do this thing called patrolling. Uh, patrols are the first uh, two to three weeks of the season, and it's where we hike 12 to 22 miles a day. They're responsible for around 365 miles of trails, clearing away trees that have blown down over the winter and hoeing out drainage ditches that have filled in with leaves and dirt. And in part because if a chainsaw breaks down when you're 15 miles into a 20-mile hike, you're sunk. And in part because of this tradition of brawn and perseverance, they clear the trees by hand with axes. So it's just like hike, 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 chop, 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 ho, ho, ho. Yep, exactly. Chop, chop, so 20, chop, 22 miles in a day you'll do with, with stopping to do blowdowns. Yep, yep, five days a week. You know, they just used to do insane things. That's Joan Chevalier. She was the first woman to be on the crew back in 1978. She remembers the crew had to rebuild a steep trail on the region's highest peak, Mount Washington, which meant carrying massive logs on their backs down from the summit across what is basically a boulder field called the Alpine Garden. They all dressed up in costumes. <laughs> and they packed these ridiculous walls across the Alpine Garden. And so that was just kind of one example. It's almost like they're superhumans. Yeah, there was kind of this mystique about them that they, um, there was kind of this swagger about them. <laughs> that they were better, you know, they were one of the better trail crews and they could do anything. And, you know, they, they ate five times a normal human beings. Everything was sort of supersized. <laughs> I heard a lot of these stories from current and past members of the TFC while working on this story. 
crew members deciding to hike to their next project site, which meant going 27 miles over Mount Washington, which is one of the most inhospitable peaks in the country, in the middle of the night. Crews loaded down with so much gear that they couldn't stand, or so weighed down that they tipped over in a river and struggled to get out from under their packs, or this one gruesome story of a crew member who slipped while swinging an axe at a fallen tree trunk and opened a flap of flesh on his knee that his friend said looked like a slab of raw meat. He lost a liter of blood, but still finished chopping out his blowdown tree and then hiked more than five miles out of the woods under his own power. And having been told these stories, even then, it felt like TFC members were holding back, like they couldn't tell me their best stories. But these stories of pure, astonishing physicality are just one part of what makes the crew legendary. Reason number two for the TFC legend? They get up to some serious shenanigans. Some of these stories have become part of the lore of the White Mountains. An example? Back in the 50s, some of the kids on the crew heard that President Eisenhower was coming to visit the state. Bob Watts was on the crew the summer this happened. There were two or three of the trail crew and two or three of the hut crew who combined their talents and actually were successful in putting a goatee on the old man of the mountains. The old man was a famous rock formation in the White Mountains, which, from a distance, looked like the profile of a face. It was one of New Hampshire's most well-known icons until it fell down back in 2003. These kids from the trail crew somehow managed to tie bushes to his chin, which is 40 feet below the edge of the cliff that was the top of his face, a cliff which is hundreds of feet tall. All of this just to give him a funny little beard. So these guys really, for almost a half a century, went into hiding and never would admit their... uh participation in this shenanigan. It seems like each crew gets up to some sort of foolishness. Crew members camping out in the woods during huge storms, crew members building a fake bird's nest complete with hard-boiled eggs with spots drawn on them and convincing passing hikers this was the nest of the rare alpine duck. These are hijinks, college kids in the woods. And again... This is just what they're telling me, an outsider. I can tell that there are more stories just under the surface. But you wouldn't mistake them for your typical group of college kids in the woods. And this is a third reason that the TFC is legendary. Their look. Members of the crew don't look like earth-loving hippies. They're like filthy, muscled punk rockers. To match the mystique they've cultivated over the years, the crew has adopted a certain style, mostly mohawks, which, according to Nova, is more aerodynamic. My theory is it's also a radiator. So you get to shave the hair on the sides, so that allows a lot of heat to kind of radiate out and you evaporate. Then you have the vein of hair coming down the center, and that condenses the, condenses the sweat coming off your head and then recirculates it and getting grimy as expected. It's pretty much a one shower a week kind of group. John Lamana, a crew member from back in the 70s, puts it this way. Any trail crew guy worth his shit, he would rather have mushrooms growing out of his underwear, if in fact he wore underwear, than he would ever be caught with his ax dull or not ready to go. You see what I'm saying? Maybe to you this sounds a little bit 
fratty. And it's definitely the case that most of the members of the trail crew are guys. But the only time I really notice, like, I'm a girl is when hikers will pass and make, like, sexist comments. This is Anna Malvin, a.k.a. 10-Gage, who's doing her first year on this year's crew. I'm like, oh, why don't you get the guys up there to help you? <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, like, I think the crew's really cool because they try really hard to not make a difference. And you try to work your hardest, and as long as you're working towards your 100%, that's, like, all they expect. You know, AMC was one of the places where finally you could sort of eventually, you know, with the trail crew, that that women and men were equal, and it didn't matter. Everybody did what they could do and uh, made a contribution. Which is not to say this has always been a place that a gender studies major would have 100% approved of. For instance, when Joan Chevalier got onto the crew, she had to become one of the guys because the lunchtime conversation wasn't about to get any more delicate. So if there was a cute girl on the trail, one of them would say, yell, yell, give me a peeler. And you, a, peeler. a peeler is a thing used to take bark off of logs. This was code for cute girl on the trail. Give me a peeler and all the guys would come out of the woods to come look at the female. <laughs> we didn't have a, we did not have a male equivalent of that, I have to say. But. <laughs> Maybe there's one now, I should ask. Yeah, you should ask. I, I forgot to ask. But gender aside, first years on the crew are always at the bottom of the food chain. Well, the trail crew's been around for almost 100 years. Um, so there's, like, things that they do um, that are just, like, really ingrained, um, I think, as a first year. You don't really get hazed, but... She says there are little things, like first years having to carry out the crew's trash. And this. We had to take a, a test in <laughs> the beginning. What just as a Just as a joke. It was, like, what color are this person's tidy whities or <laughs> stuff like that. Um, we're getting, like... Um, like little balls through us. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So it's all in good fun. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is sort of difficult to sometimes see the line between what's hazing and what's bonding. This is Panesh Shaw, who was on the trail crew in 2001 and 2002. You know, like I think a good example is like one of the things that they do is, um, you know, you're supposed to always keep track of your acts when you're on trail crew. Panesh once left his axe on a workbench while he ate dinner, and two upper-year members, including one who would later become his wife, hid his axe behind a shed. You know, that, I think that, that's probably, you know, that there's, a, that there's some element of hazing there, but there's also, you know, there is at least some, some purpose to that. Um, right. You're being instilled you know, with a value. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, and you know, and, and ultimately it's pretty harmless, right? Like, yeah, that's totally tame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think you'd be able to get that quality of work product or just the the amount of labor that that the crew puts in for the amount they get paid um, unless there was some other benefit, right? And that benefit is pride. Pride and cohesion and friendship. One crew member told me it was like being in an Air Force squadron or an infantry platoon. Another I interviewed said, everything felt right when she was on trail crew. Like, she had figured out what was important. And when she came back to college, it was like everyone else was still so confused. 
this this trail crew job this is not something that they just drop in out of the sky and work for a summer in the woods in the White Mountains they might think that way when they plan to get here but they find out quite soon that it's different Ben English was on the crew in the 50s to this day he and John Lamana still hike up to visit today's trail crew at their various projects out in the woods I talked to the two of them by a waterfall near where the crew was completing a staircase you could tell they were incredibly proud of their time on crew and of the work that the crew does. You could also tell that they were deeply uncomfortable with talking about this very special kind of secret part of their life on the radio. Uh, we could tell them about it. Tony, can the, in the fire pond there, we could tell them that. We can't tell them that no. story, man. No, I don't think we I know we can't. We can't tell them that. Because Tony could still be alive. The yeah. so, there's, so there's stories that, that are... Uh, too good for radio. Oh, yeah. Oh, we have to maintain a, a, a certain mystique about us, right? That's definitely right. I mean, we don't want the whole friggin' world knowing how good this is, because they'll all want to do it. You got this shut off. I can shut it off if you want. Well, yeah, because I, I, I think that... We don't want it And with that, we cut off the tape. I guess if you want to hear these stories, you might have to just join up yourself if you think you can hack it. Okay, so the trails that we walk on are built. They're constructed by trail crews like the TFC. Now, Imagine what it would be like hiking somewhere with zero trails. Depending on the landscape, it could be pretty intimidating. Immediately you feel the, just a vague, low-level anxiety bordering almost on panic uh, because you realize the infinite options that you have. At any moment, you could walk here, you could walk there. And if you get lost, you're in big trouble out there. It's going to be really hard for them to find you, especially if you don't have a cell phone. I had a little uh, locator beacon they give you, but they say it, it, it will inform them if you stop moving after 48 hours, something like that. So <laughs> I thought it was a good way of recovering a corpse, maybe, but maybe not the best way of recovering an injured person. This is Robert Moore. He's the author of a new book called On Trails, which is about trails in general. He's talking about staggering around in a peninsula in Newfoundland covered with this dense brush of waist-high trees called Tuckamore. I went off and I started picking my way across this landscape. I don't have to fight my way through these groves of old trees, these stunted old trees called Tuckamore, and they'd rip into my flesh and they'd tear the water bottle pockets off my backpack. And it was just incredibly exhausting. And then on the last day, I finally found my way back to this cairn, which marked the end of the hike, the end of the pathless section, and the beginning of the trail that would lead you back. I just found this profound flood of relief. And right away, you can feel the, the difference uh, because your mind, a lot of just your mental load is lifted. Robert started thinking about trails while walking the Appalachian Trail and decided to write about trails generally when he realized that no one was interested in another story about a middle-class white guy walking the AT. The moment you start to realize the construction of a trail or that a trail is constructed, I think, is when the trail goes wrong. You know, when you're walking along and you want to go in one direction and the trail goes in another, 
Suddenly you stop and you think, who built this and why? Why are they making me go over here? Humans, we're rebellious creatures. We don't want to do it. And so oftentimes people will strike off and they'll make a shortcut. And that's the moment when the trail starts to schism. Then you start to realize that, you know, there's one way that's the official route and there's the other way that's the way that people actually want to go, what they call a desire line. So, I mean, how often do we see that kind of situation where trails, be they roads or sidewalks or, you know, who knows what, don't actually go where people want them to go. I mean, where do we see the most desire lines? Uh, I think city parks and college campuses are probably where you would most often see them because the design is often very intentional. You cannot force people to go anywhere. They will go where they want to go. I was just recently in Central Park and I saw an area where they tried to fence off a desire line to stop it from forming. And someone had walked along and just stomped down the metal fence and continued walking <laughs> over it. And you will see that everywhere. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The, I, I talked with a guy named Morgan Somerville. He works at the ATC. And he said there used to be a fall line trail up Max Patch. And it was going up, you know, fall line trail goes up the, the fall line, the, the way that water would fall down. That's the way people naturally try to go up and down mountains. But of course, you don't want them to do that because the water will erode the trail too quickly. So they blocked off the trail with these rhododendron bushes. They put up a sign and they routed the trail around. And he said within a couple of months, the rhododendron bushes had been torn out. The sign had been taken out by someone and the trail had just gone right back up the fall line. He joked that he said, I, I always say this whole hiker management thing would be a lot easier if we just got rid of the hikers. Because it's, he's, and, and I think a lot of uh, trail builders feel that way. I mean, they may not admit it, but it's, it's very frustrating to design something and then to not have people follow your designs, especially when your design is very carefully thought out for reasons that the hiker isn't even considering. I mean, it, makes, it makes it sound like animals. Like we're just like, you know, cows in a herd that, that can't, be, can't be reasoned with. I mean, I think we're even more basic than that. I think it's like water. We just flow. We want to flow where we want to flow following the line of least resistance. Most of the time, I mean, the people are just another element of nature, and you can try to stop it, but most of the time you're going to be thwarted. And so what these, what these trail designers have told me is that the best way to keep people on the trail is to build the trail where people want to go. You have to sort of bend their desires. You have to channel their desires. A guy named Todd Branham, who's a professional trail builder in North Carolina, told me, you know, if the trail is well designed, people will want to stay on the trail. He said they'll be having so much dang fun they won't want to get off the trail. And so he's very careful if there's a waterfall that people can hear from his trail, he makes sure that the trail goes over to the waterfall. Because if you don't build the trail over there, they're just going to go over there anyway. <laughs> and so I think of that as a metaphor for the environmental movement at large. You know, how do you convince people to do what's best for the planet, what's best for other people, but not necessarily what their first impulse is? You know, How do you convince people to conserve rather than to waste? How do you convince people to recycle rather than to throw things away? How do you convince people to walk to the store down the street rather than to get in their car? Uh, and the trick to it, I think, ha having studied with trail builders, is to know what people's desires are, listen to their desires, and then try to work with those desires. Don't try to stymie those desires because, trust me, people will win in the long run.
Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Logan Shannon, and Cordelia Zars, with help from Taylor Quimby, Molly Donahue, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Maureen McMurray. We've got some folks to thank here, including former TFC members Kyle Peckham and Natalie Beitel, who are assembling a book of stories of people from the crew, and Barbara Witten of the Trail Crew Association, who helped me to track down old crew members. Thanks as well to Rob Burbank of the AMC and Kristen Bailey of the National Forest Service for setting up our day out on the trail. Over at our website, we have got some fantastic historical photos of the TFC provided by Bob Watts. There's also a much longer version of my conversation with Robert Moore. So if you found that interesting, there is a lot more there about Native American trails, about places that don't have any trails, about how trails are made. Head to OutsideInRadio.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Outside In Radio. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Music